Board Games follows the entrepreneur Marcus Dreer and his determination to accomplish his goals by any means necessary, even if it plummets him down a deadly hole of no return. For all of my book lovers out there, Board Games is a simmering drama that boils into a gripping conclusion, and you can find Board Games 1 and 2 now on Amazon. It'll be the perfect read this holiday season, and it's written by yours truly, so you won't be disappointed. You are now tuned into the Sociology Podcast. Sociology is a lifestyle brand emphasizing Chicago culture, experiences, and stories and connected topics abroad. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow from the hearts and minds of Chicagoans themselves. Benny Lee is a man of many titles. He's a college professor. He's a business owner. He's an advocate. He's a mentor, a speaker, a leader. He's an author. He's a producer. But before all of those titles, he had another title, the original chief of the Apache Vice Lords. On this episode of Sociology, we're going to go into part two in a sub-series that talks about Chicago gangs and how they function. And Benny Lee is going to give us his personal story on how he was first introduced to the Vice Lords on the west side of Chicago, how the gangs functioned with each other, and how they coexisted with all of the other movements around them at the time. The Civil Rights Movement, the Black Power Movement, the Black Panthers with Fred Hampton out of Maywood. All of this, as well as his personal journey throughout the Illinois justice system and incarceration. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Whole lot of gang shit, part two. So you moved to Chicago when you was how old? I was nine when I came to Chicago. You was nine when you came to Chicago and your father had got a job here, right? That's what brought y'all here? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what area did you guys settle into when you first uh, touched down in the city? We was in the Garfield Park area. They called it K-Town. Mm-hmm. What was it like in K-Town around that time in your life? This was in 1963. 63, yeah. Yeah, this was in 1963. And you had a serious war between the Egyptian Cobras and the uh, Vice Lords in that area. But then right there in the media area where we was at on Van Buren and Kiel there, you had a lot of little small groups, you know, like you had the warlords. Then you had a group that was older than us, the Seven Hoods. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they they was a little older than us. And then uh, a lot of their younger brothers and cousins uh, that I ran, with, we became baby hoods. Baby and hoods. Yeah, then you had the Gladys boys, the Monroe boys. So you had a lot of little cliques, you know, like little blocks that made up little street games right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this was, this like was 63. 63. 63 in K Town. 63 in K Town. Yeah. And, um, and was it like a predominantly black neighborhood at that time? Was it still some whites, you know, around in the area? Like, you know, how was the integration and segregation at that moment? Yeah, that era had became a predominant black community because blacks was moving across Pulaski going west. And uh, it was maybe three years after that, we moved further west on Cicero where it was predominant white. But to the most part in that era, that was predominant black. Predominantly black, okay. And so when you moved to Cicero, did you guys, when you guys moved close to Cicero, did you experience any racism, anything like that? 
Yeah, we wasn't in the little town, Cicero. We was on the streets. Cicero. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. Correct. Correct. Yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah, and we uh, were pretty much in between Madison and the 290 Expressway on Cicero. Uh, the block I lived on, which was the, it was two blocks in one, the 48 to 4900 block on Jackson between Cicero and Laverne. Okay. And we was like uh, one out of three black families that lived on that block. And then mm. Laverne going back west was predominantly white. Yeah. Mm. That's a that's a very thin line. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Very yeah. thin line. And you know, so we talk about 63, but we all know what happened in 68, you know, when uh when King was murdered and you know the riots and all of that. Um, so it's like the 60s was just really, if you really just zoom out outside of Chicago to the whole country, the 60s was really like a real tumultuous decade at a boiling point, you know what I'm saying, of racial aggression and, you know, all of these things that was going on around the country. And when you zoom back into Chicago, you know, it's like we already know the Chicago race riots that happened in 1919, you know, but a lot of racial incidents was going on in Chicago, right? And, you know, there's a myth that says in that era, and I'm sure you can you could speak to this and, you know, confirm if this is true or not. It's a myth that in that era, a lot of Black gangs were formed for protection in their neighborhoods. Is that true? Can you expound on that? You know, how, how did that play into, you know, you guys forming these gangs and these cliques and, and what have you? Well, yeah, when you look at... Uh say the west side of Chicago, a lot of blacks was moving out of that era down by Jewtown, you know, around Halstead and Troop Street, you know, 14th Street, uh, 15th Street, going south, right? Because mm -hmm. Roosevelt, you wouldn't go across there because you was in Little Italy. Yeah. That's where Sam Giacano, you know, the Italian mob was right there. Yeah. And so you start seeing a lot of blacks moving from that era going west, you know, across Damon, up across Western. It's going into that's going into Londia, which was a predominant Jewish community in the uh, late 50s, going into the early 60s. You start seeing a flux of blacks mm -hmm. moving in Londale first, you know, because mm -hmm. when you look at the black community on the west side, the first black community on the west side was in that Jewtown area, like 14th Street, 15th Street, you know, Troop Street up to uh, Ashland, right? That was like the first black community. And then as time went on, black started moving around Lake Street. Mm -hmm. You know, this before they built those houses. Matter of fact, this before they even built the Eisenhower and the Dan Ryan Expressway. Oh, yeah, we way back. We way back. Yeah. But you start seeing... Uh, when Mayor Daly became the mayor uh, to keep the blacks from crossing Wentworth on the south side, that was called the Black Belt then between 42nd Street and 27th Street. That was called the Black Belt. That's where the actual 1919 race riot actually happened. Yeah. Now it's called now it's called Bronzeville. Mm -hmm. And blacks was going across Wentworth over into the stockyard and all that. That's where it got that name back of the yards behind the stockyard. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the blacks that was coming from the South during the Great Migration in the 30s, those blacks coming from the South ran into a confrontation with the blacks that was already here. 
because the black that was already here felt like the blacks coming from the south was imposing upon what little gain they had already accomplished. So that detoured the blacks from the south to go west, and they would get off a of Union Park, I mean Union Station, and start in that area what they call the village, the Apple Homes, down by uh, Halstead, Ashland, 14th Street, 15th Street, and then as they outgrew that little area, you know, they far as they came up was I think like up to Racine, then mm-hmm. a lot start going toward Lake Street, you know, between Lake Street. Uh, uh, they was trying to cross Harrison, which was a German community, but it locked them into that little box. And then when Mayor Daly became the mayor, he built the Dan Ryan Expressway as a border for blacks crossing Wentworth. And then he built those housing projects from 6700 South to 22nd Street and shot them up in the air. Yeah. And on the west, west side to prevent blacks from crossing Harrison Street, right, over to that German community, he built the Eisenhower Expressway. And then he built the uh, Henry Horner Projects and shot blacks in the air. And as blacks were trying to go west, then he built Rockwell Projects to contain the blacks in that era. And then those blacks that were trying to go north of Roosevelt Road into the Italian neighborhood, that's when he built those housing projects, Abla Homes, that they call the village and them, uh-huh. and them 16 stories, you know, the village there. Yeah. Just to contain blacks in those areas. There. So yeah, that's it's like, like it's like they was building barriers. They were literally building barriers, you know, right. to, to keep African Americans, blacks in these areas. Right. And that was going on like in the late 30s and early 40s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now you had a lot of little small groups. But see what what prevented blacks young black youth that would would probably be street gangs back then from becoming street gangs you had the policy kings they ran the policy numbers racket yeah so young so young black guys then that was old enough to become part of a gang would become a policy runner <laughs> you know and the policy kings they bought uh they, they they paid for people to get businesses going and sent kids to school and all this that kind of stuff. So that kind of prevented from black gangs to flourish in the black community because you didn't start hearing nothing about black street gangs in like the late 40s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like you said, the late 40s and you touched down in Chicago in the 60s. What, what was the introduction to the Vice Lord organization for you? Um, walk us through that. You know, so you, you just you just told us about the barriers that were created by city of Chicago politicians, the mayor, and you know the housing projects and all this. You just gave us a very brief and detailed overview of that. Now the ramifications of that is the white flight, right? Of the right. whites that was still there. But then now you just got all these black people. You already told us about the conflict between the blacks that was in Chicago versus the blacks coming to Chicago and the great migration. But now you got all these blacks here. Everybody ain't on one accord. Everybody not working together. So what introduced you to the Vice Lord organization? Well, um, like I said, I moved out of K-Town in 1966 on Cicero in Jackson. And when I got there, you had a group of the Cicero Vice Lords. Cicero Vice they were, Yeah, they were a branch of the Vice Lords that came out of Londale. Okay. Because there was, a, there was like a gap 
Because see, Polanski Road was a dividing line from the vice lords and Egyptian Cobra. See, Egyptian Cobras ran K-Town, you know, from uh, Pulaski back to Cicero. That's all K-Town. Every street that ran north and south started with a K. So mm -hmm. the Vice Lords was east of Pulaski, going toward uh, Londale, Homer, and Kesey, right? And so the Cicero Vice Lords was the first branch of Vice Lords that came uh, west of Cicero, but like that big void there between Cicero and Pulaski, all that K-Town, those were Egyptian Cobras. So we lived on uh, Laverne and Jackson, that's one block uh, west of Cicero. Okay. And they had the Cicero Vice Lords, right? And by us being young, we was like in the seventh grade by that time, you know, 13, 14 years old. And we had to fight these white boys to go swimming at Columbus Park, which is 5,500 West. And mm -hmm. we was coming from like 47 and 4,800 West, traveling through this white neighborhood to get to Columbus Park. And uh, we got noticed by the Cicero Vice Lords as a little clique, a group. You know, it's about a good 40 of us. And mo we were like mostly seventh and eighth graders at that time. And that's like, a large group, 40? That's a large group. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was in 66 and 67 when we started getting noticed. And how I got into the vice lords, they uh, first we used to throw rocks at them and let them chase us, play that kind of game. And they would catch us and beat us up and all that. And then uh, one day they just out of nowhere surrounded us on Laverne and Gladys. And they said, if you guys going to be in this area, y'all got to be vice lords. Mm -hmm. And we didn't even see ourselves as a gang. We were just young guys just fighting whites and trying to hang out in the hood, right? And so they say it's going to be a nation meeting at Mandel Church. That's 1500 West on Congress, right there, Congress and Laverne. They said, now be there. That's this Friday. Y'all need to be there, right? Mm -hmm. And so when they left, we didn't even have a name for ourselves. So his brother named Troy Martin. Uh, now he's known as King Troy or the Mafia Vice Lord. Troy say, well, you know, Geronimo is Apache warrior that fight, fought the whites. And we fighting these white boys. Why don't we become Apaches? Mm. And so we all voted on it. And that's how we got the name Apache Vice Lords. That's how it started. So, yeah. So when we went to that nation meeting, you got guys like Afonso Alfred, who took over the vice laws because Pepelo, the founder, had stepped down by that time. You know, and then you had I older guys off Cicero, uh, this guy named Slim, he was he come from off 16th Street and started the Cicero Vice Lords. He ended up dying, and then this guy named Charles Norris took it over. So they was all at the church there, and uh, they introduced us as uh, their shorties <laughs> off Cicero. Mm -hmm. And so that's when we got identified as the youngest branch of the Vice Lord Nation, Apache Vice Lord. And then they recorded me in as the youngest chief of the Vice Lords at top. I was four, 13 or 14. And I got, I became a Vice Lord and a chief all in one day, put it like that. Wow. So you got, so, all right. So you and your 39 comrades, you know, that y'all traveled together because it was 40 of y'all, right? You said about 40, you know, we, we estimate it yeah. was about 40 of y'all. Yeah. Y'all just yeah. mad at y'all business. Y'all just trying to stick together for protection. 
Right. And then out of nowhere, you got some vice lords that basically draft y'all. They like, look, you coming through here, then, well, you got to be one of us, right? Now, since y'all younger, y'all basically obliged to that, and you're like, okay, cool. So overnight, you become not only a vice lord, but you cover the chief, too. Right. <laughs> overnight, yeah. like, how, how, how did that make you feel? Like, did it stroke your ego? Did you feel like you was the man now? Like, how, how did that make you feel after all of this, you know, transpired? No, I was a little, I was scared and nervous. Yeah. Because, you know, when you identified as the chief, the book stopped with you. Yeah, right. Correct. So, so if any static happened, everybody going to look at you. Like, for example, I remember we was in school one day, and this guy, he had moved off Alaska, kind of tough guy, right, named Calvin Jackson. And he came into school, right? He was a rough guy. Okay. And, so one of my guys, uh, Troy and Dwayne, the two of my guys, Troy and Dwayne, they came to my room and they said, hey man, Calvin Jackson. Uh, yeah, he said Calvin Jackson is saying ain't gonna be no Apaches up in here, man. So now I'm the chief, they coming to me, so I gotta deal with this, right? Oh, man. So I said, well, where he at, right? So I gotta step up, man. And he said, well, I just saw him go in the bathroom. So I went in the bathroom. I told him, man, I said, look, y'all wait right here. Let me deal with this. So I went in there one-on-one there. I said, man, what the fuck you talking about? Ain't going to be no patches up in here. You know, and he started talking crazy. I said, look, we can shut this shit down right now today, right? And I said, well, come on with it. You know what I mean? Come on, let's fight, right? Let's box. You know, he tried to swing at me. And I shoot and drop neck didn't know he fold up and stuff. I said, as a matter of fact, from this day on, you a motherfucking Apache, and I need to see your ass on Apache Corner tonight when we up there. You get that? Mm. He's like, yeah, man, right? So we, we come out the bathroom, and my guys looking at me wondering what happened. I said, now nah, he's a motherfucking Apache, and if this motherfucker ain't up there tonight, we're going to be, I don't need y'all to beat his ass, right? And mm. So I stepped it on off. Because now I'm the chief, so I got to, you know, step up. So, so a lot of situations, like even with some of the most Cicero Vice Lord, they used to mess with some of my little guy. They're coming, so and so did. I said, "Fuck it, man, come on, let's mob up." With about five or six of us to go up on Cicero with them older Cicero Vice Lord. I said, "Man, what the fuck is all this?" You know, I had to be the spoken. So, being that leader wasn't easy. You, you yeah. know, and a lot of times I was in a scary situation, man. Mm-hmm. I had to do some shit that I was afraid to do, but being in that position, you know, and then you don't want no reputation as a punk. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And how old not, just how being old in that, I was I think I was thirteen in seventy in sixty-seven. Yeah, I was thirteen in sixty-seven. Thirteen. So you was a chief at 13. the age of thirteen. You know, you yeah. were in junior high school, you know, yeah. elementary school, and these are the things that you gotta worry about. You basically became you know, you had to run the streets, basically. You was like the politician. You was the go-to man. You know what I'm saying? You was the CEO. That's a lot of pressure. And, like, what was your home life like while you was um, involved in, like, all of this? Well, I, my family was a middle-class family. Mm-hmm. And my, father, my father was a welder, right? He worked at National Casting Company right there on 14th and Laramie. My mother was a registered nurse. Right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like we was poor, you know? Yeah. Uh, my father got off work. I had to have my butt at home by five o'clock 
chores done sitting at that dinner table, man. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that dinner table like group dirt. So a certain thing I just couldn't engage in in the evening in the neighborhood because my father would just come around the corner and unexpected. Yeah. But what happened, what happened in my case, my father shift change from eight to four to four to 12. Mm-hmm. And that's when I got loose because now when I get out of school, my father would be at work. So I can run circles around my mother because she had to tend to my three younger sisters because it was six of us. Three boys, three girls. The boys were the oldest, mm-hmm. right? And I would time my father. I knew his lunch break was at eight o'clock. And he might come around there on his lunch break and stuff. So I had all that stuff. I would eat back to the house, make like I'm cool. And my mom would think I'm all right, and then she would go to sleep, and we sneak out the basement. So that's how I got pulled into a lot of stuff because my father's shift had changed. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like. It's kind of like a weird twist of fate, ain't it? Because it's yeah. like, you know, you was the chief on the streets, but you weren't the chief at your house. But, you know, once your father's and, you know, his schedule changed and all of that, it's kind of like it allowed you to continue, you know, everything that you was involved in with no interruption. It's like a weird twist of fate how that happened. Um, you know, so you're the chief of the Apache uh, Vice Lords. You, you hinted on the Cicero uh, vice lords. How did your gang, your frac- your faction, coexist with the other factions of the vice lords? How did they coexist with, you know, other gangs on the West Side, like the Four Corner Hustlers? How did y'all, you know, did y'all ever come in contact with, you know, the GDs on the South Side, the Stones? You know, let's let's talk about that real quick. Well, you know, the, the it wasn't no such thing as GDs back then. It wasn't okay. no GDs. GDs came about in prison. You know, Larry Hoover, when he left the street, he was not even a GD. The GDs didn't even exist then. Mm-hmm. And then uh, those, the disciples in the stone, those were Southside gangs. Correct, yeah, correct. The largest gangs back then were the Egyptian Cobras was the largest gang. And then you had the Imperial Chaplains. And the Vice Lords were just becoming a large street gang on the West Side. Mm-hmm. Then you had the Roman Saints, you know, then you had the Goon Squad. All those were some large gangs on that west side. Vice Lords wasn't the largest at that time, you know. And me being in the position I was in, you know, like I said, if the older Vice Lords had some situations, they would come to me and say, I need you and your guys to meet us over here. So we would do certain things like carry pistols, you know, uh, lay traps and shit like that. You'd be used at decoys because we was young. I remember one night uh, they had to go deal with a situation down on the low end in K-Town. And uh, me stepping up like I am, right? They said, here, shorty, take this. And they gave me a 44 Magnum, mm-hmm. right? And I put it in my waist. Now, I'm scared, man. I ain't never had a gun in my possession ever in my life. I ain't never shot nobody ever. Yeah. But I know we're going to go down this other end, you know, for the move on these guys. And I know when something happens, they ain't going to turn around and say, hey, man, give us the thing. They're going to turn around. Yeah, you got you to do it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm really scared, man. You know, but I didn't have the courage to tell them, no, I don't want to do it. Because I want to be recognized as having some heart. Right, but really, I was scared, man. And I, you know, through the grace of God, did nothing happen. Mm-hmm. And when we got back up on Cicero, they like, yeah, we told you, man, shot it cool. You think he run the mob over there and all this stuff? 
So that night, man, my dilemma was I was ashamed that I was scared, mm. right? And I had to prove to myself that I was cut for something that I really wasn't cut for, right? And so the next day, my homies, they like, yeah, Billy, we heard you with Mookie and Peanut and the man. They told me you had to thump and all that stuff. I'm like, yeah, man, you did. I got to explain what happened. But I didn't tell them that I was scared to death. Mm-hmm. So from that point on, I'm trying to prove that I'm cut for this. Yeah? So I became real aggressive. You know, like, give me the pistol. I got it. Move. I got this here. You know, trying to prove to myself that I'm cut for that. But I really wasn't cut for that, man. Mm. You know, so, so I kind of destroyed my own self by trying to be something I wasn't, man. Mm. You know? And you know things would just uh, you would get deeper and deeper with it. You know the um the the more the game grew, you know um I would assume the more territory you guys acquired because you guys did acquire more territory, right? Yeah. Now we did. Uh, now the folk on the hustle they started on Jackson and Pulaski around nineteen same time we started around nineteen sixty six. Uh, King Wheat Walter Wheat he's the founder of the folk on the hustle. He originally was an independent vice lord. Him, Willie Lord, all of them were independent vice lords. And then Walt moved on Wilcox and Pulaski, and they went to Delanois School. Like, they was in the seventh and eighth grade. We went to May School. We was in the seventh and eighth grade, right? And they first branch was by Spencer School, like around Laverne and Fullerton, West End, that area. And so we was at a, a basketball game one night at Resurrection School. And as we was leaving, these guys, they was going toward Madison. We were going our way, right? Some of my guys knew some of them guys because they was from Spencer and all that. And so all of a sudden, a shot go off. You know, somebody done shot, right? Mm-hmm. And so we like, what? And then they holler, faux love. So I'm asking my guy, what they say? And this guy, Bruce Benson, said, man, that's them folk on the hustlers. They be over there by Spencer School. But I ain't never heard of no folk on the hustlers, mm-hmm. right? And so we met on Apache Corner the next day. I said, man, we got to go over here, man. And we got to look into these folk on the hustles. They shot at us last night. I had sense enough to know being a mob, you got to defend your rep. And that make you look like a punk if somebody that shot at y'all. Y'all ain't did nothing. I had that much sense. So we went all across Madison and we whooped everybody in our age group that we thought might have been a folk on the hustle. Mm. And we marked up their area, Apache, AVL, right? And, and then nobody say they was a foe. And then about two days later, one of my guys, Jason Domino, was talking to this guy, right? And he said, hey, man, I need you to meet Fred Gage. He the chief of the folk on the hustle. And I said, man, y'all shot at us the other night. He said, man, no, we were just fucking around. We really want to shoot a child. But I was talking to Jason, man, we want to unite with y'all, right? And so mm-hmm. we talked, so we agreed, we'll unite with them. And so we went over Nate Turf, you know, because we thought we was the roughest. And we gonna go over there, we're gonna come over with y'all at, right? So we met in a lot right on Laverne and Fullerton. And the way back then, the way you united, one of your guys boxed one of their guys, and vice versa, all that kind of stuff. And so that's how we united. They became folk on hustle vice lords, mm. right? And so they was like allies to us, you right. know, later. It, they became like a opposition to us later, mm-hmm. you know, because of some that, that happened while I was in St. Charles. When I went to St. Charles, that that happened, 
that yeah. tension between the foes and but by that time the Apaches that changed his name to Insane Vice Lord. So the name was changed, but it was the same faction pretty much. Yeah, well, when I was in K Town, I was a baby hood, you know, we were seven hoods. Right. And the, and the old seven hoods moved on Cicero while I was in St. Charles. And they was in St. Charles with me, and they was going home before me. And I was telling them, I said, man, now y'all up on Cicero, we vice lords, man. Get up with my guys, man. You know, Troy, Big Red, all them, man. You know, uh, Champ and all them guys, Willie Cage, you know, get up to my guys, man. We vice lords. So when they got out, right, and they had a meeting, and so both groups dropped their names. The Seven Hoods dropped their names, and my Apaches dropped their name. And that gave birth to the insane vice lord. Mm -hmm. So when I came home, everybody was expecting me to step back in the plate. One, I didn't like the name insane because I had sense enough to know insane mean you was crazy. I didn't never like that name. Yeah, I didn't agree with that name, right? And then uh, the guy that did uh, uh, said he's gonna be the chief of the insanes. He was uh, our chief when we was baby hoods. Brother named AJ, right? And so. Most of them guys was my guys before I left. And they pulling at me like, man, you know, you the real chief. And then Walt Wheaton, Fred Gage, the folk on the hustle, they were like, come on, man, you know, you really the chief, man, step in play. Because Walt, he didn't, he didn't have no respect for AJ because he shot AJ. AJ almost died and he mm. didn't retaliate. So Walt didn't have no respect for him, but they respected me from back in the Apache days. Yeah, but I yeah. was telling them, I said, no, man, I'm a player now, man. I'm trying to give me some money. I ain't with all that game banging shit no more. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, but then Fred and Walt they was trying to get me to turn the insanes to foes. I said, no, I can't do that, man. This is home here. I can't face these guys. We can't do that. So me and AJ talked first. He was saying, me and him both could run. I said, no, leave it like that. You know, I just support you because I'm off the road, right? And we agreed he remained who he was, but respect the fact I'm a player now. I ain't with all this game banging shit. But when shit would happen, like they had serious confrontations, say with the black souls or with the foes, they can call on me, pull me out the pool hall or something, and I would step up and represent who we are. Yeah, because you still you still had your reputation, so therefore you still had rank yeah. amongst yeah. You know, the people, you know, and yeah. all of that. Um, you know, I want to I want to. I wanna, take a quick backpedal um, to two things. First is, you know, um, in the late 60s, how did the Vice Lords and the foes and all of that coexist with the Black Panthers out there? On well, the keep in mind, uh, Fred Hampton came out of Maywood and they started, they branched out of the Panthers. They, they office was right off of uh, Oakley and Madison, right? further east, but they opened up a, a black library on Van Buren and Cicero, and we should go in there to get out the code. And they would teach us different things about history and the conditions of black people, right? But there mm -hmm. was a little tension at one time where Bobby Gordon, them, you know, as the heads of the vice lords, saw that a lot of young vice lords was passing out some of the Black Panther literature. You okay. see, the Panthers, they believe in calling the police pigs, shoot the pig, and that was not Vice Lord's intention of their script. Because in fact, it was two police commanders that got with the Vice Lords and helped them to organize a conference. 
where they pulled off a conference, they brought all those businesses like Kraft Food, Marshall Fields, uh, Dale, Bell Telephone Company, Western Electric, all those companies together, and the local legislators together, they had this conference. And they appealed to them that they're older now and they're trying to do something different for these young brothers, right? So they won't go down the path they've been. And out of that, that group of businesses and legislators became Operation Bootstrap. And their initial intent was to give the vice lords, the Roman saints, and the Egyptian cobra. They, they came together to pull this off, right? Uh, initially, some support letters so they can get grants. And Sears and Roebuck became the vice lords' fiscal agent. Yeah. But mm. there was some tension because they started noticing little guys like us having this Black Panther literature. And they was afraid that we wouldn't know how to respond to the police if they called us with the literature and all that stuff. So they, uh, you remember the uh, newsman, anchor man on, I think it was on Channel 9, Warren, Sa Warner Sanders? It rings a bell. Yeah, yeah Warner Sanders at the time, he was the, the director of the Better Boys Foundation, BBF, right at oh, 15th in Pulaski. Okay. And, uh, and you probably heard of Eusini Perkins. He mm -hmm. won... That, that famous poem, Hey, Black Child, You Can Be With You. He's, he's the yeah. author of that poem. Plus, he wrote that book, Home is a Dirty Street, and then Exposure Chicago Black Street Gang. Well, anyway, he was a social worker there. And so they mediated a meeting between the Black Panthers and the Vice Lords. And so they came out of the meeting agreeing they all was on the same page. It's just that the Vice Lords didn't believe in calling the police pigs and all that stuff. Because Vice Lords had an open house with the police and all this stuff. Because they believed in community and they knew police was part of the community, but they had to have a relationship so they could slow down harassing guys and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But that was like the only, in fact, but now there was a, a, a coalition. Well, the Panthers had formed the, uh, the Rainbow Coalition. Correct. With the, the young patriots on the north side and white, poor white folks and the young lords. They were like a Hispanic version of the Black Panthers. Right, right, right. And so that coalition met with the LSD. That was a coalition with the Vice Lord Stones and Disciples. That's what LSD stood for, Lord Stones and Disciples. And they had a citywide coalition shutting down construction site throughout the city and telling people not to riot and all that kind of stuff. So uh, Fred Hampton, he was real. You know, them Panthers, they wasn't like street thugs. They were like college students. Yeah. So they would politically inclined all that and so uh it was a big meeting supposed to happen down at uh, uh grant park but the fbi they had a, what they call a cointel pro movement you know counterintelligence where they would put uh uh one group against the other and get them to not trust each other to keep ruckus going on and uh, they sent a letter to Jeff Ford saying if he showed up, that Fred Hampton or the Black Panther going to have him killed. And sent one to Fred Hampton saying it showed Jeff Ford going to have him killed. So that caused the distrust there, right? But there was a, a coalition building between the Panthers, the Vice Lord, the Stones, and the Disciples, and the other yeah. groups. Because now they think, because by this time, everybody was getting these grant monies. Yeah. You know, and it was what they call a self-help movement. You know, the vice lords that got incorporated uh, August 27, 1967. That's when they got incorporated as conservative vice lord incorporation. 
-hmm. and they started getting monies from the uh, uh, Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Company, and they started hiring young black, young, they were hiring us, our group, to clean up our neighborhoods. We got paid to clean up our neighborhood. They opened up two teen towns, I mean, uh, House of Lords, where we go and do our homework, do tutoring, play games and all that, get us off the streets. They had the African Lion, which was a boutique where they sold dashikis and Afro picks and all that kind of stuff. And then they had Teen Town, which was a restaurant on the uh, northwest corner of 16th and line there. Then they had two Tasty Freeze ice cream parlors and stuff. So they were doing a lot. And uh, they united with the Stones because one of the original vice lords, Leonard Calloway, was the first cousin of the founder of the Blackstone Rangers board, Gene Harrison. Mm -hmm. So that brought that relationship together. And so the vice lords would go out south to help the Stones shut down the construction in Woodlawn. And the, and the Stones would come out west and help the vice lords shut down construction, like when they was building UIC and all that. And so the disciples kind of joined. <clears throat> mm -hmm. But you know, keep in mind, this was a movement era. Mm -hmm. You had the Black Power movement going on. Uh, Martin Luther King was still alive. Yeah, he was living in Londale, right? And uh, Mayor Daly didn't want him here, and so those black ministers organized to prevent King from speaking at their churches, so he wouldn't have access to the black masses. <coughs> and so Reverend Al Sampson, he was like the street outreach for King now, <coughs> and he uh would met with the different street gangs and brought them and introduced them to Martin Luther King. And so when he marched through Marquette Park, those were black stone rangers and disciples that marched with him. And when he marched through Cicero, those are vice lords that marched with him through Cicero. Mm -hmm. And again, by me being young and in that leadership role with the youth, my role was to make sure my guys didn't walk in these people's grass when we walked through their neighborhood we finished a candy bar, put it in our pockets, you know, uh, and we had to understand those six principles of nonviolence, right? Which were? One of them, the, the first one is nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people, not cowards. That you got to have the courage to practice nonviolence. You have to have the courage to speak about unjust situations. You can't worry about it. If you go and address this unjust situation, you might go to jail or you might get shot. If you worried, then this work ain't for you. You might as well go home. You got to have the courage to meet it head on. Then the second principle is to build a beloved community wherever you go. So what that looked like, wherever I go, I'm building a beloved community. I'm trying to reconcile things with people, work out stuff, mediate stuff. You know, then the third principle is, can you accept suffering without retaliation for the sake of the just cause? Somebody might disrespect you, challenge you, threaten you, but can you accept that form of suffering without retaliation for the sake of the just cause? Then the fourth one is, you got to avoid inner spiritual violence to prevent outward physical violence. And can mm. you live up to that? And then the fifth one is, we attack the forces of evil, not the people that's doing evil. So we don't attack police officers that shooting blacks. We attack the police department because that's the source. Because as long as that system is there to safeguard and protect that police, he's going to keep on doing it. So until you dismantle that system, which is the force of evil, you're going to always have another police and another one doing that there. You know? 
So those are like just the principles of nonviolence. Then they had the steps of nonviolence, you know, uh, get your facts together first, right? Research your facts. Then the second one is uh, share your information, educate those, bring even your opponent to a new awareness of what you see, because you enlighten them on your facts might get them to change their views on this situation and all that. And then listen to your opponent, you know, because they might share some with you to make you look at the way you see it a little bit different, you know. Mm. You know, that's beautiful because like everything that you just said is, is it shows how, you know, um, I'm gonna just say black organizations are not a monolith. You know, you got the vice lords, you got the foes, you got the stones, you know, but you got all of these communities branching together when need be. You know, you got the civil rights movement, you got the black power movement, the black panthers. You know, you have all of these branches coming from one tree, you right, you know, um, that all within its own way is trying to better the black communities, is trying to protect the black communities, is trying to get justice, equality, right? You got all of these things going on at once. So I wanna, you mentioned St. Charles a couple of times. Can you let our listeners know what what St. Charles is or was? St. Charles back then was Illinois State Training School for Boys and it was ran by the public aid system because youth was considered delinquents then. And that's where they sent you to St. Charles. And uh, it was different than what it is now, because see, back then we slept in dorms. We slept in cottages. We had cottage parents. We mm-hmm. wore our own clothes, right? Uh, matter of fact, everything we ate in St. Charles, we grew it. You know, you had brothers lived in farm cottages that grew the corn, that grew the potatoes, that grew the beans. We even had the cannery with brothers with canning peaches and stuff like that, putting beans in cans and stuff. We had the butcher shop where brothers was taught how to kill a cow, how to strip it, how to cut it up. And then you had brothers worked in the butcher shop where they cut it up and they made hamburger out of that beef, made uh, 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 steaks and all that kind of stuff. You know, this is what we did as youth in St. Charles, right? Yeah. that, you know, you can, you got a skill there, you know, uh, but it's different like that now. Now it's like a, a jail. And St. Charles is where the Vice Lords was founded at in 1957. Mm-hmm. That's where, where Pepe was at in St. Charles when he organized the Vice Lords in, in Harden Cottage, right? Uh, and so that was like a, a, you got some respect, especially if you was a Vice Lord, you ended up in St. Charles, that's where it started. Like I ended up down there. My, I got scapegoated really, you know, when Martin Luther King got assassinated in uh, April 4th, 1968. And that caused a lot of racial tension nationwide, really. Yeah. And so that was the same year that we graduated out of the eighth grade along with the folk on the hustle. They graduated out of the eighth grade at Spencer School. So we were that largest group of blacks to go to Austin High School. So that means we had to travel as a group through this white community and flood this all white school. One day I was in my class and four guys, white guys, decided to come and attack me, right? So I'm boxing with them, right? And so it happened four of my guys was coming down the hallway, they got in it, right? And that led to other guys getting into it, right? And so when it was all over with, all the blacks got suspended. Nothing happened to the whites. They say I was the ringleader. 
And I was the only one to end up in juvenile court. Mm. And when I went to court, they asked my parents if they wanted me to go to school. And my parents, of course, said yes. But man, my mama hollered so loud when that sheriff grabbed me and handcuffed me, took me out of that courtroom. Mm. I look back and I see my father slumped down. Man, I'm 15 years old. And I'm thinking my family done gave me away. They don't want me. I'm thinking these people bold because I ain't did nothing but defend myself. And I ain't never spent the night in the Audi home. I left that courtroom Saturday didn't take for maybe 20 minutes. They put me on the van with some other guy that was in the Audi home and drove us straight to Lil' Jollette. Now back then, Lil' Jollette was the maximum security prison for youth. <laughs> and they sent me to Lil' Jollette because it was a diagnostic center too where they decide where you're going to go. St. Charles, Hannah City, uh, Giant City, uh, Kankakee, those little camps and stuff. But I posted, went to camp for three months. But when mm-hmm. I got this jolly at, I ain't never been to Idaho. home. But all them guys, they come from the Idaho. home. So I ain't know none of them guys, right? But I heard how guys done been molested down there, raped and all that shit. So I said to myself that night in my cell, I'm going to kill me somebody before I let somebody molest me or whatever. So when I came out that sale, I was a whole different person, man. Yeah. I wasn't too friendly. Yeah. You know, then when they let me out of intake and they put me in dorm folk. And when I got there, a couple of my guys, some Apaches, right? Because we were still Apaches then, uh, was had been in the home, had been talking about me before I got there. So my name was kind of ringing. And so when we were at the gym, the guy that ran all the stones down there, a guy named Puncho. He, he approached me and said, hey, man, you want to box? I don't want to get in no trouble. I want to go home. This is my first time ever locked right? So he pushed the issue. said, come on, man, we're just going to be. So I knew, I knew, you know, if you show a guy you got some fear, it give him more courage, right? So I said, well, fuck it, man, come on, let's go. So we got the boxing, man, and I seen he couldn't buy it. I fold his ass up like a napping so quick. Right. Man, went crazy. Ain't other vice lords up in here? <laughs> right. Boy, they hair up and shipped me to St. Charles. <laughs> well, I was supposed to went to camp. <laughs> but yeah. they shipped me to St. Charles. And when I get to St. Charles, you know, I was already in the same uh, uh, dorm and Jollette with Larry Ford. You know, he was a football for Alaska. Some of them guys, uh, Prince Jerry, he was the first prince out of the folk on the house. Prince Jerry, Jerry Walker, right? So I knew them guys. So we ended up in St. Charles, guys. They're like, boy, you was a damn fool, <laughs> right? You supposed to went to camp, now you down here with us, right? And so as time went on, you know, I'm steady running to guys from out south, you know, them warlords from out south, some disciples, uh, them stones and stuff. And keep in mind, I'm off Cicero, the road. Ain't nobody never heard of Cicero. We, we, we ain't known as a black neighborhood. So I'm kind of got to defend it. Then some of my guys coming down there, they into it, guys. I'm coming out of my college, going over there, man. Get up off my man, dude. Right? So my homies, they going home, but I'm steady getting set by Dr. Sapone. They had me to see the same psychologist that, she, that treated Richard Speck, that killed those eight nurses. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That was at a Jeffrey Manor, right? Yeah, Manor, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. They had me seeing Dr. Sapone, the same psychologist that treated him. Because uh, they say I had a high IQ, but my behavior was con- contradictory to my IQ, right, the way I act. But I'm just standing up for, you know, I'm off the road, you know, get up off my man, right? So they started going home, and I'm steady getting set three months here, six months there. So I ended up doing two years down there. Mm. Yeah. 
two years right. in St. Charles, and then yeah. you uh, came home. And then, um, at what point did you go back behind the wall? Well, shit, I went out two weeks and ended up in the county jail. Mm. Yeah, I went out two weeks because I was a, uh, I was a cannon. I picked pockets, right? Yeah. And uh, this before I got into a con game because I was a short con. I was, you know, playing the three card, the molly, three tops with the ball. You know, selling empty boxes and all that kind of stuff, short changing people, playing the crooked dice, you know, with the eight straight five, six, eight fast, all that stuff. Right. But I was a, a cannon. I picked pocket. I ended up in the county jail after being out two weeks. And that was like a homecoming. All them guys that was in Little Jolette and St. Charles and me, I met them in the county jail. Charlie Freeman, I you know, all them guys, Lil Durkey, all them guys, they were disciples though. Mm-hmm. You know. And they threw me on E2. And boy, when they threw me up on that deck and slammed them bars, now this is in Division One, the match joint, <laughs> the county jail. Boy, they threw me on E2 and threw me on that deck and slammed them bars by 40 guys out there in the day room. And every one of them said, Disciple. <laughs> I said, Okay, this is it. <laughs> right. You know, I've been in situations like that through St. Charles, right? So I know put my back up against the boss. Okay, nobody come behind me, right? Have them guys scared anyway. If I smack one of them here, he gonna run. You know, so I'm ready to go, right? But they chief come out the back, Don Durkin. He, what's up, B. Lee? Because you know, in St. Charles, they call you by your first initial, your last name. He said, what's up, B. Lee, man? Man, shit, I don't know. You tell me, right? He got to tell them guys who I was and all that shit there. And one little guy was animated by me mugging me. And he said, man, if I left you in this day with this band, you'd be hollering for our help, man. You better be mindful who you be fucking with, man. So he told me, he said, man, your guys upstairs, you'll see them the next day when we go to school. So we went to school the next day. I ran to China Joe and all, them, all my guys, right? And then they ended up transferring me over there. That was my first experience in the county jail. It seemed like they were setting me up to get hurt. Mm. Which they do that kind of shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. so that was your first experience at county. When did you end up at Pontiac? Well, um, I was in and out the jail because I became a heroin addict. So I started catching cases more frequently. Okay. Because, you know, when you shoot heroin, heroin only lasts for four hours. And then you get sick. So you got to shoot dope every four hours to stay normal. So that means that you had to you're spending something like a, a minimum, you're spending a minimum of $120 a day just to keep your sick off to stay normal, right? Mm-hmm. So I had to do some serious hustling. So I, I moved from being a player there, bread to man, I started rafe building shit. I started robbing people and all kind of jumping off moving buses, all kind of crazy shit. So I end up with a, a home invasion, armed robbery, a shootout with the police and had some hostages up north. Yeah. And uh, I stayed in the jail maybe close to three years trying to get the best deal. You know, and I finally copped out. Plus I had five years probation that I violated. I ended up getting three to nine years for violating that probation. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I ended up in uh, Joliet like around April 78. And I left Charlotte to Pontiac around uh, the last part of May or early June of 78. And I was in the South Sale House. 
And I didn't feel comfortable over there because them guys was going to school, working jobs. And I felt like I was in a cell house full of stool pigeons. You know, I want to be over there with guys robbing folks and stolen shit, you know, that kind of shit. Yeah. So uh, by me being, having the status I had as one of the heads of the vice lord, they had to give me some rank there, you know, because they couldn't just put nobody over me because I was a chief from the street. And so uh, they gave me the South Sea House, and I was the chief of the South Sea House. But I told them I didn't want it, man. This is my first time down. I'm trying to get parole, hopefully in November, and get this to somebody that's going to be here or been here because I'm trying to get out of here. But they, man, no, we can't do that because of your status and all that stuff, man. So what I did, I knew that uh, the uh, North Sea House had the printing company, the vocation over there. <clears throat> so I signed up to work in the printing shop. And I knew that would transfer me to the North Side House to get from under that status. Man, I transferred to the North Side House that Wednesday, and the riot happened that Saturday. And yeah. tell us about the riot. Well, how that happened, that was not planned and organized. Uh, a year before I got there, this brother, uh, Roosevelt Daniel, he was a known drug dealer back then on the West Side. A year before I got there, he had knocked Brick teeth out. Brick was a vice lord, one of them Macateers, Pocahontas Macateer, and knocked his teeth out. So, uh, so Bro went to say it. But the vice lord said, when he come out, they're going to hit him, right? And it was just perfect timing. The day before the riot, Bro come out of segregation. So, vice lords did what they said. They hit Roosevelt Day. So Roosevelt Daniels made a comment that he gonna kill every vice lord in the penitentiary. So we saying, man, uh, he gotta get out of here, right? So now the black souls say they gonna step up on his behalf. So we saying, we gonna come through y'all, you know, to get to him, right? So the chief of the black souls, he like, man, I don't know why we had each other. This conditions down here and this system got us, we overpacked and crowded stuff. We need to attack the administration, right? So this this big old meeting on the yard, right, with all this here. Larry Who was the first one to say, no, ain't no GDs up with this here. We out of here. <laughs> so they walked off the yard. So Vice Lord, we said, no, man, y'all can take that, do what y'all want with that. We ain't with that. So we walked off. But the next day, when we went to breakfast, usually when we leave breakfast, we go back to our cell, then go to the yard. But this morning, Brothers got the ranking, throwing shit, cussing guards out and all that shit. You know, it's kind of like a buildup. And so instead of them sending us back to our cell, they sent us straight to the yard. And so when we get on the yard, brothers talking crazy, man, yeah, we need to really tear this motherfucker up. Ooh, you know, one thing led to another. So on our way back to the cell house, right, I hear somebody say, man, don't let that motherfucker close that door, right? So you hear a lot of noise inside the cell house. Right, they rioting, right? And man, I'm break through the door, and when I finally get inside, next thing I know, I, I got a shank through my arm and got the police like this here. So the shank Damn. is in my arm and in the police neck at the same time, right? Damn. Don't ask me how it happened, right? But I got a shank straight through my arm, and part of it was in the police neck. I'm trying to hold him so he don't rip my motherfucking arm and all that shit, right? So when I finally get the shank out my arm. I'm running upstairs, man. I'm trying to like wound, deal with my wounds, you know. 
and but they still rioting and stuff. And as time went on, somebody say the National Guards is here. So they came in and first thing they did, they, they locked up everybody that was in the cell house, right? And then they went to the yard and everybody that was left outside, they made them go to the yard. Now this is July 22nd, 1978, hot to the mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> made everybody strip butt naked on the mm. yard, strip butt naked on mm. the yard, face down on this hot ground, then made them by rows stand up, walk butt naked, and as they come past police, they hit them with batons and stuff like that, and marched them in the cell houses and locked everybody up and took back control of the joint. So now it's real quiet, <laughs> right? Yeah. So they cut the water off. They didn't feed us for about three days, no water. So you had to reserve the water in your toilet to drink. Wow. You know, wow. if you didn't have no commissary, your ass was out of there. You know, but we had a system where vice lords had what they call a box, where everybody go to commissary with donuts, something to that box for situations like this. And then we had like three, four sales that stored cigarettes, coffee, Zuzus and wham wham. Like when a new guy come, he gets some out the box. Or when situations like this lockdown, we can survive off stuff like that. So we had that set up. So we was kind of high, you know. But yeah, that that happened. And then they start uh, grabbing brothers, taking them to the school, because now the Illinois Department of Law Enforcement started their investigation. And uh, I went over there, right? And they like, well, what? Man, I was in my cell. I don't know what happened. I can't tell you nothing. I was in my cell, all this stuff. Yeah, I heard some commotion, but I ain't paying no attention. I just got down. I don't know too many of these guys, so I ain't have no reason to be out, right? So they sent me back. The next day, they sent me back over there, rousing me down to the ground, pulled my sleeves, explain how that happened. One of them GDs had flipped and told me that he saw me snatch the knife out of my arm and then stabbed the police and all that shit there. You know, they rushed me to the hospital. The doctor said gang green was sitting in my arm. They might have to cut it off and all this shit here. Yeah. You know, and so that was like uh, July 78. And we stayed on lockdown till like October 14th, 78. That's and that's time. when they came and hit my cell. So I was on institution transfer. But the joint was still on lockdown. And they uh, grabbed every guy that had a high ranking position with any street organization. And uh, when I, I know when I got on that bus and I saw Larry Hoover, King Ike, and Smokey Hill, Prince Bank, I said, oh shit, we hit mm-hmm. all the heads. And so they shipped us from Pontiac to Stateville, and they had the death penalty. They just brought the death penalty back. So they put us on death row. That's where their houses at, where Richard Speck lived over there. You know, mm-hmm. the guy that killed Dayton, that's where he lived at. And so they housed us on death row, right? And uh, we didn't have no contact with each other, you know. And uh, as we was over there, the, the guards started getting loose with us and started letting us out for the seconds here and there to the, like a it's a room really like a concrete room they call the yard you know we would do that but we didn't we didn't we didn't trust each other because here we are facing the death penalty and we from different miles we didn't even trust each other you know but the indictment didn't come down to march 79 you know uh-huh. the next year uh and, and and they charged each one of us with 15 counts of murder two attempt murder mob action and uh, 
Mr. Fatcom was just rebuilding the nation of Islam because the Honorable Elijah Muhammad had just died, was in 75, 76, he had just died, and the nation of Islam fell apart. You know, and Farrakhan would tell you, he went to smoking cheap cigars and drinking cheap wine and stuff. So he was just rebuilding the nation of Islam. And so they let him in to talk to us, right? And uh, he explained to us that 300 years ago was the conspiracy when black men were taught not to trust each other through that Willie Lynch formula. But here we are facing a death penalty. We look at each other's opposition that we ain't got a chance in court. And that's when we realized we had to become brothers for real. So we started organizing ourselves and we formed different committees. You know, we had the financial committee, the political committee, the communication committee, you know, so, but the way we did it, a, a member from each street organization made up the committee. We didn't want say the vice lord become one committee, the disciples become a committee. We wanted every committee to have a brother from each organization on there. Mm -hmm. And that would force us to build relationships with each other. And so once we established that, then the brothers behind the walls, they did the same thing behind the walls. You know, the disciples, the stone, the vice lords, all of them got together and they formed the same committees. I was over the communication committee. So I would communicate with brothers behind the wall that was on the communication committee, what was going on with our case and all that stuff. Then they would communicate that to throughout the whole prison population. <clears throat> and then brothers on the streets, they formed the same committee. It was just in our favor that a lot of brothers was on the streets. You know, Willie Law was on the streets, King Neil, uh, Hanif, uh, uh, a lot of them guys was on the streets, right? Uh, yeah. Godfather, AJ, all of them was on the streets, right? And so uh, they formed the same committee on the streets that we had and what they had. And when we would write and we would end our letters with your brother in the struggle. So they gave us the name Brothers of the Struggle. So we became original boss, Brothers of the Struggle. Yeah. You know, but as God have it, we got acquitted on all charges because, you know, we use Governor Thompson's take statement the night of the riot, when he, uh, at the press conference, he said that they expected that riot a year ago because Pontiac Prison was designed to house 600 inmates. And on the day of the riot, it was over 2,000 inmates. Wow. Even the officers was in conflict with the administration. And then the inmates was in conflict with the officers and inmates were in conflict with each other because of these conditions. So that helped us. Plus, we had a scientist testify that under those kind of conditions, everybody felt like a suspect, and people would do what, anything to get from under those conditions. And so uh, we was able to challenge some of the state witnesses, which was inmates, that, yeah, in fact, they got good time for their testimony. You know, a lot of them use alias names. So they brought out that you will tell a lie. Yeah, you are a criminal. And none of us took the stand. So we looked at like church boys with our ties on, helping our lawyers with their seat and all that stuff. And uh, these guys, they looked at like criminals because they were testifying that they was in prison for this, they lied, all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> so we ended up getting acquitted, the first 10 of us, because uh, it was 17 of us at first and one black soul, Angela, Angela Robinson, he's 
turned state evidence. And so that broke it down to 16 of us. And then when we uh, pushed for trial, one GD and one new breed decided they wanted to uh, a speedy trial also. And uh, they joined and that made it 10 of us. So that made it 10 of us. And so we went to trial and we beat the case out, got acquitted. And so they knew they couldn't use the same evidence against Larry Hoover, them to remain in six. So they just threw the case out of there. But we was the Pontiac, first we was the Pontiac 29. Uh-huh. Because they shipped 29 of us in October from Pontiac to Staley. Then they brought two more down and made it the Pontiac 31. Then when the indictments came down, we were the Pontiac 17. And then them guys that got charged for breaking and looting and hurting officers, they indicted 14 of them and they became the Pontiac 14. So you mm. had the Pontiac 14 and the Pontiac 17. And then when one 17 turned state, we became the Pontiac 16. And then when we went to trial, we became the Pontiac 10. <laughs> and then when Larry Hoover then was up, that didn't they become the Pontiac 6. <laughs> it just kept going down. <laughs> okay, so yeah, it just kept going down and down. And God is great that y'all got acquitted um, from that chaotic, you know, and tragic situation. So what year were you fully and finally released from prison, Benny Lee? Uh, I call a case of February 28th, 1984. Uh, called a bogus attempt burglary. You know, some little guys are breaking in a store in Moscow's on Adams and Cicero and they ran out the store and as they ran out, I walked up, the police came and locked me up for attempt burglary. And that's when I went to the county jail and uh, a homeboy man was telling me that I can uh, file to be a drug addict and Mike can go to drug treatment as opposed to going to prison. And I went through the process to do that and uh, the state's attorney tried to reject it because of my background. So I was a known gang leader. I've been charged with gang racketeering and murder, da da da. But the uh, judge, he asked why should he mandate me? And I told him, you know, because it's cold outside. You let me go this morning. I'm going to be forced to go take a coat. I've been to penitentiary three times. I don't really want to go back. Yeah. This, yeah. Where I'm going to help me. And he believed me and he mandated me to treat me. I walked out to county jail November 15, 1984. That was 37 years ago. I ain't been back since. 1984. Uh that's that's amazing. And you you made a comment the state attorney was trying to keep you in there. Was that uh Richard Daly? Well, you know, uh you had a state's attorney, but then every courtroom got a state's attorney walk out okay. the state's attorney's office. Got it. Uh, okay. Daly was not the state's attorney at the time. Okay. It was, uh, it was, uh, state's attorney Curry. He was the state's attorney at the time. Okay. Um, but yeah, so you you got out in '84. Uh, you never looked back. So, what is your life like now? You know, you um obviously you're a professor. Well, my life now is I'm trying to rest. Yeah. I'm trying to I'm trying to step back from a lot of what I do now. I. I if, if, if I made my transition right now, a lot of people got a lot to say about me. You know, my obituary would be something people would be proud of, I think. You know, because I done made some accomplishments.
this. You know, even in substance abuse, when I became a certified drug abuse counselor, they would discharge drug addicts that had criminal backgrounds prematurely because they didn't know how to deal with them. And I'm the one came up with a training. How do you train counselors to deal with criminal justice substance abuse? I got a award for that stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Then I did another training on how do you work with gang affiliated substance abuse, you know, because I just believe like uh, the Association of Black Psychologists, you know, Dr. Wade Noble, Dr. James Small, Dr. Naeem Akbar, Dr. Asa Hurley, you know, we got a black psychology. Our psychology is different from white psychology, you know, and I bought into that, you know, through the help of sisters like uh, Beverly Hamilton Robinson and Dr. Hattie Wash. They mentored me and gave me this understanding that you got to treat clients from a cultural context. You know, so I started studying them and, uh, you know, looking at the psychology of black people, how that came about, how it was a shape and stuff. And, and that gave me my foundation. And I rose up, you know, and I became the, like every year in Illinois, they give a, a, a professional of the year award to one substance abuse counselor throughout the whole state and i earned that award i think it was in 2000 i got that award mm. and then they have a national award the johnson institute give a national award to success stories throughout the nation and i got that award somewhere around in 2004 i had to go to dc to get that receive okay. that award okay so i didn't get a lot of things you know i didn't help change legislation dealing with convicted felons uh, I've done trainings over in Ghana. I spent the month in Ghana doing trainings over there. I spent the month in Israel in 93, uh, being pulled over there to talk about youth violence. And I was doing all that, and I didn't even have a degree. All I had was a GED and my certification. Yeah. I didn't get my degree until I got my bachelor's degree, I think it was in uh, 2003. It took me 10 years to get it because I go to school for a semester, don't go back for two years, go back for maybe two semesters, then go, won't come back for three years. Took me 10 years to finally get that bachelor's degree. But then once I got the bachelor's degree, I just went full fledged and went for my master's degree. But while I was in school, a lot of those professors would have me to come speak in their classes. You know, like the classes on theories of criminal behavior or introductory to criminal justice or uh, Chicago gangs. Yeah, I ended up getting my master's degree. And right after I got my master's degree, uh, the university approached me and asked me if I'd be teaching a class on the history of Chicago street gangs. Mm-hmm. But by that time, I rose up and became uh, the director of a program and uh, at interventions. And when I left there, uh, they had just opened a Sheridan prison and the whole prison is treatment. And Dean Benos, she's a, she was the assistant director of all the prisons in Illinois. Uh, one of the uh, Eternal Affairs, the director of Eternal Affairs for the prison, she would host these uh, Project Same Neighborhood forums. That's for any person coming out of the Illinois prison got guns in their background. They had to come to this forum. It was mandatory and they would have me speak at those forums and let them brothers my sat where they sitting there and I don't know how to live a life without a gun. And they was impressed on my deliverance and how the guys respected me. And so they invited the assistant director to hear me, right? Cause they had just opened up Sheridan prison. And so she approached me and said that uh, 
I would be the ideal person to be part of this project. Because Governor Blagojevich at the time, he knew that over 70% of the people in Illinois prison been there before. A lot of them been there for drugs and alcohol related cases. And uh, so he opened a prison where every inmate there was in drug rehab. Because he believed they got treated for their drug problem while they was in prison. They have a chance not to recidivate once they come home. And so she approached me and asked me what I think about becoming part of that project. And I told her, I ain't trying to work in no prison. You know, I had my days in prison. So about a month later, they had a hearing down at City Hall, treatment on demand. You know, Congressman Davis and LaShawn Ford, all of them got together. Because they noticed how a lot of people in the Black community got drug problems wouldn't access treatment, but they end up locked up in jail and they wanted to cut that down. So they asked me to testify as an expert witness, right? And Dan Bino's assistant director, she was there. So she asked me would I be willing to meet her in her office at the state building so we can just talk. So I said, okay, ain't nothing, nothing to lose. So she was explaining that I would be ideal for this project because one, I'm an ex-con. Two, I'm a recovering addict. I'm a certified drug abuse counselor. I done read drug programs, right? And then I understand this whole recidivism and reentry piece. So I told her, look, I done been a director of program. I done managed buddies. I done did staff development. You know, I'm trying to move it to be like a consultant, da, da, da. So she asked, what will it take to bring me on board? And I told her the dollar amount, what I need, all that stuff. So they created a position for me. Uh, community liaison slash reentry specialist. Uh -huh. so that's my title for the Illinois Department of Correction. I got an ID that allowed me in any prison. And so that's how that happened, along with me becoming a professor at the university around the same time, right? And then I started getting asked to speak on different panels and hearings and invited to conferences in other states and stuff like that. Right. And so I got pretty much a, a name for myself in, in doing this work, you know. Absolutely. Kind of like kind of like Malcolm X, how he vowed when he come out to prison that he's gonna speak the truth about black people. So I vowed that I'm gonna speak on the behalf of convicted felons. And you know, and so to wrap up, let's let's uh end on that note. So to speak on behalf of convicted felons, um you were a chief, you know. You're out, you're free, you're able to live life. Obviously, you're not a threat to society and none of, none of those things. What are your thoughts on, you know, other of your, you know, other um, former gang leaders in Chicago that are still behind bars? Like, do you believe they should be freed as well? Well, I, I believe, I, I truly believe in due process of the law, you know, when I committed a crime, I accept the fact I committed a crime. And now I'm conscious enough to know that most of our crimes is black on black crime, right? And so I deserve what had come to me. Now, I don't agree with the conditions of the prisons because now we don't have an opportunity to develop ourselves. They don't give us the necessary tools and they don't have an educational system in in play to prepare us to come out. And that's, that was my biggest fight. But now you got some guys in my age group, now they done died out, man. You can't rely on them guys, man. Them, them guys need to just do like me, reinvent themselves. Because we don't have that 
influence on these little guys like we used to. Yeah, and you know, like specifically like Larry Hoover, Jeff Fort, those guys. Yeah, you know, like if a young guy, if I said something to a little vice lord today, he ain't got to worry about me making his ass yield. Because you know, I ain't finna pick no gun up today. I ain't finna bust his head with no bat. I ain't finna do none of that. So they ain't worried about me. You know what I'm saying? And any brother in my age bracket to think like that, <coughs> he ain't for a rude work. Because these little brothers, like I was telling one of my homie, uh, KT, he's asking me how I'm dealing with all this violence out here. I said, man, shit. I accept the fact I'm old, man. You know, these little guys, man, they ain't gonna hesitate. I hesitate. See, if I had a gun, I hesitate. <laughs> I, I freeze, I think twice. These little guys, they ain't thinking twice. I can't compete against that. They, they, you know, when we were young, we wouldn't hesitate. But I ain't young no more. Yeah. So I just I just believe that these guys need to reinvent themselves and find a, a different, you know, because we had an era. And that era over. You know, like Muhammad Ali had an era when he was a boxer. And he moved into a new era and he started speaking on world circuits. Right? And he became a truly uh, Islamic minister. He moved into a different era, right? I'm in a different era now. My era is writing books, producing documentaries, educating those that's coming behind me that's deciding to get into this kind of work. This is what this looks like. That's the era I'm in now. You know, I'm in my winter years. <laughs> I'm in my winter years, man. I got more years behind me than I have in front of me. But with everything that you're doing now, you're in your golden era, though. Yeah, I, I yeah. got a, I got two grandsons that I'm trying to uh, pray that I live long enough to see them move on, you know. If you enjoyed this podcast, I ask for two things. Number one, leave a five-star review. And number two, pass it on to a friend who may enjoy it as well. And don't forget to subscribe to our other podcast, Mogul Motivation from True Stories Media.